You are listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast, brought to you by Bobby Hayeri and Darren Venter, founders of the Investors Agency and DBAR. With over 20 years experience in real estate between them and having bought hundreds, if not thousands of properties around the country, you are in the right place to learn all things property. This podcast is designed to educate and empower everyday Aussies to take control of their future through property. Hey guys, and welcome to the latest episode of the Lazy Equity Podcast. And on today's episode, I'm very excited to have an extremely special guest on the show. So today's guest was a winner of the RBE Women in Real Estate Awards in 2020, along with being featured on channels 7, 9, and 10, along with news.com.au, Herald Sun, realestate.com.au, and domain.com.au. So today's guest is one of the leading buyer's agents in her field in the principal place of residence space in Melbourne. Emily Wallace, welcome to the show. I'd love to hear um, for the listeners who's M uh, on a personal level. On a personal level, I'm high energy, dog loving human who I guess just really enjoys life. Like I just love what I do. Um, I'm a very excitable person and um, yeah, enjoy many different things travel, food, exercise, all the good stuff. And uh, what's your what's your favorite? You said food. That's obviously a soft spot for me as well. I'm a big, big foodie, so that's the first thing I'm going to touch on. Favorite cuisine? Japanese. Hands oh, really? Down. If I could only eat one cuisine, it would be Japanese the rest of my life. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I'm I'm a big fan of wagyu, but I I can't. Not really. It's sort of sushi and the other other things. I don't mind, but but wagyu is definitely a soft spot for me. And you said um you said dog lover. Do you have your dog there at the moment? I know you were saying that you're you're at yeah, home today. He- He's literally just jumped up on cue. He's um, tapping on up. my knees at the moment. <laughs> Let's get him up. See him? Yeah, yeah, I would love okay, to see hang him. Okay, on. One second. <laughs> Sorry for you guys listening. You're not going to be able to see him, but you'll have to tune in. Very cute. <laughs> and he's growling well, he's... himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how funny. I guess I'm um, cool. Traveling and you said you're, you're going to, you're going to Cairns. Uh, when are you taking, you said you're taking a little bit of time off soon, just when we're talking before the show. Yeah. Just a week in Cairns. I need some sun. Melbourne weather is absolutely <laughs> dire right now. So I just need some vitamin D and that was the closest place to get it. So I'm off to Cairns. Nice. When are you, uh, when are you going? I think it's the second week of July for a week. Nice. Nice. Enjoy the, yeah. uh, enjoy the winter chill. So yeah. How did you, I, I believe you probably became a buyer's agent if, probably a year or so before before we started, Darren and myself, but um, yeah. when did you transition into becoming a buyer's agency and how did that come about? Yeah, great question. Well, it happened after I bought my first investment property. So I bought my own property, um, my first investment on my own, not knowing what a buyer's advocate even was, um, which is crazy when I think about it now. Um, and so long story short, it was actually... I sort of saw a need in the market, particularly in the first home buyer market, yeah. um, to um, jump into it. And I also recognised there are a lot of um, advocates, particularly in Melbourne, who've been operating for many, many years um, with a particular way of operating. And I wanted to bring a bit of a new flavour to the market and a young, vibrant approach. And so, therefore, um, a lot of my clientele are millennials who are first home buyers and. Um, yeah, I really just got into it by educating myself and becoming a go-to person in the industry for first home buyers. So what did you do before you decided to become a buyer's agent and how long ago was that? Sorry. 
So I started the business in 2018, September 2018. Yep. Um, so we're sort of heading into our fifth year now. Um, before that, I was a trained primary school teacher and I worked in education recruitment. So I didn't go into the classroom, I actually went into recruitment and yeah, basically ended up in corporate recruitment and from there went into the BA space. So yeah, a bit of a bit of a funny career path, but I landed in the right spot. Five years ago, isn't it crazy how fast time flies? So we started, yeah. um, Darren and myself started in, I think, 2019. Yeah. So it would have been about wow. um, about a year after you. And I just don't know where the last four years is, uh, four or five years has gone. It's just madness. And then um, we certainly picked a turbulent time to do it as well, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys have been in a bit of a roller coaster. I mean, we all have, but yeah, cr- what a crazy time. And um, from watching from the outside in, the growth that you guys have had too is amazing. So I think, you know, credit to you for persisting through that time because some people would just go, it's all too hard and we're out. Oh, thanks, Em. I think I think we're quite fortunate, and and we'll we'll touch on on you on a on a professional level soon as well. But I think we're really fortunate that we operate across the country, so it's dynamics specifically to a region, but rather um, we're we're bound by what happens in the economy and the finance side of things. But there's always a market that's gonna gonna work in terms of the um in terms of the investing side. So why don't we tell the listeners a bit about your your buyers advocacy and then and what you I know you said you specialize in the first home buyer space mostly. Um but who is that your niche and, and what do you love to sort of focus on? Yeah, definitely. We certainly focus on first home buyers, first and family home buyers. Basically we want to buy properties that people are going to live in. Um, and so with that comes a lot of, um, first time buyers in the apartment space and then upsizes in the, you know, decent sized family homes in the middle ring of Melbourne. So, so yeah, we when buy- you say, sorry, sorry. And when you say middle yeah. ring, sort of, um, how far out of the C- CBD, uh, do you like to operate in, or do you have a specific um, niche in terms of location as well? Yeah. So we do have a, a niche, um, the Northern corridor about, about 12 Ks out of the CBD is okay. a corridor out the North side yeah. and then down the southeast side um, and bay side probably a bit further it's more like 30 k's from the cbd okay but yeah two very specific corridors in melbourne what made you select or or, or become so um such an expert or so familiar with those specific niches uh what made you what made you sort of dive into those areas specifically well southeast bayside was by default of the areas that i had personally lived in and knew really well uh so i started there and the need for first home buyers was certainly prevalent, but the north side is actually you can get more for your money, and first home buyers flock there. So we definitely followed them um, and learnt that market very quickly. And to t- like to tell you the truth, the agents are really good to deal with in those two corridors, and that's what actually drew us there as well because they make our lives a bit easier and they do give us off markets, which. In some areas, they just don't do off market. Yeah. So when you say they make your life easier, is that specifically re- related? And I, I'm asking this question because we have experience with dealing with agents across across the country, and in some areas, the agents, I would say, probably the level of professionalism is is not. Um, and I mean this with all due respect, but and I'm not going to ma- mention what areas, but um, the the level of professionalism that you do see in Sydney and I assume in Melbourne, we just don't see, I believe it or not, I've tried calling a specific, an agent that has a property on market at the moment. I would have called him four or five times last week. I've called him two times this week and I've sent four or five text messages. 
um, and I still haven't heard a response. You don't. That's just ridiculous. That's. I mean, that poor vendor. Like that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Imagine if you're selling yeah. your property, right? That's nuts. That's unacceptable. I don't know how they still have a job in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say you know, agents make your life easier, sort of, is it is it the level of professionalism, or what do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, they want to do deals with us. They um, treat us like their colleagues. They keep us in the loop. They're very transparent. And communication's really strong. And yeah, they just, it's an easy working relationship. And whilst we both have our own clients' interests at heart, it's a lot easier of a conversation when everyone's just honest and truthful of what's actually going on on both sides. And that's kind of where that um, simplicity comes into it as well. And is that a conversation that you have with your clients? A lot of the time, when you've got these really good relationships with agents, a lot of the time, there is no games that are being played. And the, there's already a price that's that's is discussed prior without all those games that would normally be played at the beginning if you were just a a, a normal normal buyer. Um, is it an awkward conversation that you sometimes need to have, or not awkward, but a, 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 is it a process of trying to educate your clients that the negotiation has already sort of been done before? process because you're familiar with the agent and those games aren't being played and 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 if that is a conversation that you are having how's that how does that go from from the client side of things uh certainly when it's an off market the the price is the price and i say to my clients my job is to work out is it worth paying that price you know that that's where our value comes in in that situation when it's more of an on-market negotiation and potentially other buyers involved or other parties involved that can more so be a back and forth of negotiation and not as clear cut. But yeah, definitely we make it known to our clients that we need to protect our agent relationships. And it's more so a conversation of we can't mess around here. Like we're not going to go in a low ball because it's not going to work. We know it won't. Um, But also we're only acting on things we know that you definitely want to purchase. I'm not messing around with something if it's a half yes. I'm only proceeding if you're a definite 100% yes. Uh, And that's probably more the protection because I don't want to be known for being flaky or having clients who don't actually put a deal together. 100%. I know exactly exactly, um, where you're coming from. And at the end of the day, you're doing that because you have your client's best interest at heart because the stronger your relationship with the agents, the more they trust you and then the more that they know that you're uh, someone that can get a deal done, uh, the more they're going to come back to you with off-market properties and and, and other opportunities for your clients. So I, I totally get that so you said um you said you focus primarily on first home buyers um Mm -hmm. so you don't do you do anything in the investment space at all no that's why we have you guys (laughs) (laughs) so um i i led you into that into that question didn't i (laughs) um why you know what i guess what skill set do you do would you think that um that you someone would have in the owner occupied space that someone else would have in the investment space and why have you decided to go purely down the owner-occupied space? Yeah, great question. And and when people actually book in a call with me and I tell them I don't do investments, they're like, well, why don't you? You know, Why wouldn't you do that? And really, for me personally, and I can't speak on behalf of all people who just buy owner-ox, but for me personally, it's, it's the emotional piece that I really like. like. I love putting people into a house they're going to live in. I love going back to visit them. And I feel my impact is just different than an investor. Uh, so it's a really nice sentimental piece of the puzzle. It's fluffy and light and, you know, it's the, the good feeling. Uh, so that's kind of why, but I think for someone to do well in the only occupied space and to be a good advocate in that space, they really need to be level headed and be emotional about the outcome, but not about the journey. The client is going to be very emotional. It's their journey. It's their home. There's a lot at play. But you can't 
get swept up in that with them. You need to be the level head to pull them back in. This is a good choice because this is a terrible choice because and be really confident in the advice that you give through that journey. Yeah, and that that's a really 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 uh, interesting interesting answer because I can definitely um resonate with that. So very early on when I first got into the buyer's agency space, I was helping um helped a handful of clients in the owner occupied space just on the northern beaches of Sydney. The process was quite quite a bit more complex because you're dealing with emotions uh, and you're dealing with someone who is, is wants to create memories there with their family and with their kids and and so forth. So there's a lot more emotion. Um so that process can be quite a lot more um quite a lot longer than an invest, investor client. But that reward, like I, I remember a, a time where I had uh, I had a fully grown uh, man cry when we helped him secure an off-market property, uh, which was so sweet. And you don't get that with an investor client. We get um, investor clients who tell us not to speak to them unless we have a property for them. <laughs> <laughs> don't so, want to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, we're too busy. We don't want to hear. We don't want to hear unless you have a property. When you have a property, we'll speak to you. Um, which yeah. it's it's two polar polar opposites. And I guess the reason we went into the investment space is because um uh, we just have more of a passion for for uh, property investing and, and and buying in the right markets rather than the emotional um emotional side of things. And it's definitely a skill set. Like um to be able to mm. understand what your clients' needs and emotions are with a property and and understand what's important to them, clearly different skill set to trying to find good investment property. Investment property a lot more is black and white. I, I don't think in the owner-occupied space there's there's much black and white. I assume there's lots of gray. There's lots of gray and it comes down to a feeling. And the problem is I can put everything in front of someone, but I can't understand what feeling they might have when they walk into a property because it's unique to them. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's the thing that's out of my control. Everything else I can, you know, put together for them. But yeah, you've got to be prepared to understand that you could have everything that has every tick box item, but it's not the right one because it doesn't feel like the right one and you have to be okay with that. And for some people, that would be really frustrating. Yeah. For me, I'm just like, okay, well, we're one step closer to the one that will feel right. You know, we will get there. So yeah, it's um, it's a balance. And I heard, well, I did a bit of a stalk. I'm not going to lie. I did a bit of a social media stalk and, uh, <laughs> and your brother is working with you. Is that correct? Yeah, he is. Yep. So Harry um, started with me in August. August of 2022. How did that come about? He he's always been interested in property. He is an investor himself or rent investor, I should say. Okay. I don't know. I just sort of floated the idea to him like, why don't you just come and spend a weekend with me and see what I actually do? Because I think you'd really like it and I think you'd be good at it. And he was very risk adverse at the time. His risk appetite's much higher now. But um, he was like, oh, no, I can't. I've landed this accounting graduate job. I have to. He was working for my dad's um, office at the time. And so he comes from an accounting, accounting background. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's a um, trained accountant. Like he finished his degree and was in his first year of his graduate program at um, KPMG. So like he was wow. definitely you know landed a thing at the at the big four and he was on his way. But I pulled him out of that pretty quickly. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he he loves it because it's just such a different dynamic to what he was doing. Um, but he's great with the, the agents love Harry. They absolutely love him and he's great with the clients, but his role is agent facing and, um, he's got some really good relationships. And is he, uh, is he, is he, does it, does, do you think it's a permanent, permanent role now? He's definitely moved away from the accounting. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. And he moved States as well. Like he was in Tassie doing accounting. He moved to Melbourne and changed job. And yeah, I've got him locked in now. He's, he can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> did, um, did he move to Tassie for the accounting position? No, we grew up in Tassie. We're, we're from Tassie. So he was still mm -hmm. at home basically. And okay. yeah, he's moved to Melbourne um, 
to be over here and kind of, yeah, follow where I am. Yeah, no, whereabouts in Tassie? Because my wife's from Tassie as well. Oh, there you go. Um, Hobart, Sandy Bay. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I believe my wife, they moved around a bit, Davenport, Burnie. Um, her dad's oh, now yeah. in, in Zian on the, uh, on the West Coast. So, um, oh, wow. well, on the East Coast, apologies. Yeah, so, so we've been to Tassie, <laughs> Tassie, Tassie quite a bit. In terms of Harry working, working with you guys, what do you think is um, the biggest skill set that, that he, or what do you think is your dif- differentiating skill sets between, yes, what do you think he brings to the business that, um, that um, has been valuable? Harry is really good at challenging things in a good way. Like he'll sort of be like, well, why are we doing it that way? Or because he's, he's six years younger than me. Um, and I remember when I was that age, I was always like, well, was this the best way to do things? And I now I've become a bit more comfortable. I'm like, well, it's the way we do it. And I, um, I always believe in continued growth, but certainly Harry challenges that even further, which I love in terms of his skill set in his actual role. He's, I was speaking to someone last night actually at dinner and we're saying there are finders and there are minders. I would say I'm a finder in that I'm sourcing the clients, I'm finding opportunities, I sort of bring things in. Harry is a minder in that he really takes good care of those clients and makes sure they have a really great client experience. So I'm the finder, he's the minder and together it just works really well. Are you comfortable? You mentioned that he's very good at questioning things and why they're being done in a certain way and how they can be done differently. Mm. Is there anything that comes to mind and are you comfortable sharing um, an example of that? It's probably uh, at two levels. Is At a business level, like at the moment, we're sort of questioning, you know, what's the long-term goal of the business? And from a financial point of view, what's the best move? From a lifestyle point of view, what's the best move? And he asked some really good questions around that. And then also at a property level, like at a client experience level, he's like, well, you know, how can we maneuver this deal? Like, why aren't we pursuing this property? Or why can't we make this happen. Um, it's more on a micro level of individual circumstances, but um, the most um, prominent one at the moment is questioning the direction of the business. And it's great to have his um, more, he's a bit more black and white than I am. I'm probably Counting more a feeling person. He's a bit more black and white. Yeah. So, yeah. And what have you guys, have you guys come to a conclusion there in terms of um, what path the business wants to, what path you want to go down with the business? Because it's, it's forever evolving. Like as a business owner, I can, I can relate and with the business partner as well. It's, it's, you're always sort of having these discussions as to what the next step is for the business, what lifestyle, nothing comes for free. It doesn't matter what you do in life. There is a cost. um, There is a cost for anything that you want to do. So um, where are you guys? Uh, with that because um yeah it's a, it's a very very interesting topic that i love having with business owners yeah look i think the biggest thing my personal needs and wants is that i don't want to be a location-based operation so i want to be able to work from anywhere and so because i'm doing a lot of the heavy lifting in uh closing out the deals most of the time i need to inspect the property yeah. uh we're moving more towards a model where harry carries all the middle part of the deal. So I bring the clients in, Harry handles them, and then I close the deals. I closed a deal last night that I haven't stepped foot in the property, but I've seen the video. I know the um, location. And so it's also a mindset thing. But in terms of the direction of that long-term, Harry's like, well, why can't you just do discovery calls and speak to clients wherever you are at the time? I'll handle them here on the ground. And then um, if you need to help me close a deal, you can help close the deal. But why don't we move to something and trial you living somewhere else? Like I might go live in Queensland for three months and see what that's like. So we're kind of, we're in trial and error territory at the moment to see what works best before we commit to a longer term plan. That's really interesting because like our whole business model is based on like virtual, even before COVID, it was, um, it was mm-hmm. remote. I mean, we've helped, helped you a few times. We, um, we haven't, uh, we didn't meet face to face 
um, for those properties. It was it was all virtual. Did the walkthroughs, and and it is quite it is quite normal in that regards. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think the feedback will be from your clients for the owner-occupied space to go down that path? Well, I think the biggest limitation is the business name is my name. And so it's not so much the client experience. I think if you lay it from the outset, like this is how it's going to run, they know. It's more that I think people expect me. And so with it definitely comes a rebrand so that my name isn't attached. Um, The only reason I put the business name as my name is because it was the last thing on my checklist of like things before I quit my job um, to do was like pick a business name. And I I just couldn't land on one. So I was like, I'm just going to go with my name and deal with it later. And now we're in the later part and I need to deal with it. <laughs> well, it, it works because you've got such a strong presence online and you've got such like a big following on your podcast and on your socials and, and whatnot. So it totally makes sense to have your business name as your name, but then that comes with its challenges if you, if you do want to mm-hmm. step away and not be that client facing. So, so yeah, yeah I, exactly. I, um, yeah. I totally get that. You touched on something a few times um, today um, in regards to off-market properties. And I know mm-hmm. this is something that you uh, specialize in a lot. Um, you, you are doing yeah. lots of the off-market properties. And that's probably one of the biggest um, value adds of a buyer's agent. I guess uh, for those people who are trying to find off-market properties themselves or for those people, yeah, for those people who are trying to find off-market properties themselves, how do you, is there a way where they can do this and what do you suggest that be? Look, it's tricky because it really comes down to the ability to pick up the phone and ask an agent for something when they might not, there's nothing in return type of thing um, immediately, particularly if you're a one-off purchaser. It does come down to agent relationships. If you're not following them on Instagram or socials, like definitely do like have an account where you go and follow them because they post behind the scenes or they post like coming soon with like a little pin drop of where the property might be. Um, so just be in their world, like be in their space and make yourself known to them. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to say that the general public would be able to get the opportunities an advocate does because it's honestly down to the longstanding relationship and that that takes a lot of coffees and a lot of um, inspections to build. So it's you can certainly try and I would recommend you try. Just be aware that they um, they would like to know what's in it for them, I think. And, you know, if you guarantee the sale of your property goes to them afterwards and their next listing could be something that you have, that would be helpful. That's a really good tip. Um, yeah. Like even if you know a family member who's thinking of selling and you're like, I'm a buyer and I'm also just seeing what agents are good in the area because my auntie's selling a property soon, that's probably enough to help them um, latch on to you because they want the listing. Yeah, that's um, that's really good really good advice. And we, we, we do a bit of content about this as well in regards to off-market properties. And the mm. best thing you can do is, is jump on the phone and, and, and call the agent. But yeah. the reality is that agent has a relationship with someone who has bought multiple properties off them and that process has been extremely seamless and no deals have fallen through. It's The probability of success is going to be less if you're reaching out to that agent the first time. Um, however, there's definitely no harm in, in giving it a crack and um, mm. and often your chances will be better there than, than trying to find something on market in, in, in markets where there's 30, 40 people going through. Um, so it is something to consider. Do you think all off-market properties are good properties? No, um, I don't. Just like I don't think all on-market properties are good properties. I think it's just it's the method of sale. I think a lot of people go, oh, well, are they a bargain or are they inferior? It's just another option that has a different method of sale. It's like saying, do you think all properties going to auction are good properties? You know, when you kind of categorize it by that. Yeah. Um, so I think 
my opinion of off markets is not all of them are priced correctly and you've really got to work out, is this person selling off market because they need to offload the property or are they selling off market because um, if they get the right price, then they'll just make their life work around a great sale price. And that's really the key defining factor of an off market. Definitely agree with you. So we find a lot of the time, especially in like a, a market that's really hot and people have FOMO, we actually find a lot of the time, a lot of the off markets are and not suitable um, where it would yeah. be an agent just reaching out to a whole heap of people to sell off market and that that vendor is just listing a random price which no comparable stack up to and we know, it, you know it's not worth that amount. But the reality is especially – I'm not sure if it's probably the, the same in, in your case because you're dealing in a specific niche and people are owner-occupiers buying in that area. But we saw it happen a lot where – Brisbane was the flavor of the month, month and mm-hmm. a lot of people from Sydney and Melbourne had a lot of equity and would pay 10% over what a property is worth, sight unseen, just because it was off market when to mm-hmm. a Sydney person, maybe 10% or Melbourne, someone from Melbourne, 10% on a $400,000 property, it's only 40 grand. They might not think it's much, but it's still 40 grand better in your pocket than in, in someone else's pocket. But we just saw a ton of off markets being sold well above what they're actually worth and um i think people sometimes get a little bit excited at the um at the just at the term of off market and they think that it's a good deal just because um that's what it's being sold at yeah and to be honest some of the best deals i've put together recently are on market properties that have been dealt with swiftly in a good at a good price so yeah it's not off markets aren't everything there's there's certainly a, a piece of the puzzle but they're not the entire picture what do you mean by swiftly um for you to be able to i know at the moment Stock levels are extremely low in Melbourne. So if you're being able to secure properties that are on market and doing them quickly, then that's a testament to how you run your business and how you operate in your negotiation skills. Um, can you give us an example of um, of, a, of some recent deals that you've done or a recent deal that you've done on market? Yeah, definitely. And when I say swiftly, I don't mean in a rush and I don't mean unnecessarily either because sometimes yeah. things should go to auction. Yeah. Um, we did a deal, actually the one we did last night was a good example. It was a property that was priced um, in higher and ha- Harry and I saw it and we're like, we don't think it's worth that. Like it was quoted up to, I think it was a seven fifty um, asking. And I was like, it's not, it's not mid sevens. It's probably about seven. Anyway, long story short, the, um, the price guide got dropped on Thursday to six ninety five asking and the vendor has to sell. We got through it. Clients got through it. And yesterday and being Monday, the agent, uh, we called him and said, what's the go? He said, I've got two repeats. Um, plus you guys, it's probably going to be three people in the mix. But the vendor is giving me very strict instructions. The first to the asking price, we will sell it to. We're not going to shop it around. So it was actually a matter of time. Now, it turns out we were able to pull that off, get the review done, get it all sorted in time and submit it last night. And he called me this morning and he said, one of the other parties placed an offer 20 grand below yours. And they called me this morning to ask if they could increase it by 30 grand. So which would have been 10 more than ours. Yeah but I had to decline. They've already signed the offer. So so it's recognizing when something does become realistic that it's probably going to get some attention and you need to be swift. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a great result for our clients. Navigating that even when it was a higher price point in the beginning was also really key to keep an eye on it too. Yeah, just seeing... A lot of the time, and I'm sure you can relate to this, a lot of the time we get clients that um, value a property based on the guide 
and the yeah, guide is just, the guide's irrelevant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what so even you, is a guide? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's right. What do you? What would you? What advice would you give to those people looking to purchase a property at the moment, and and they are trying to put a value on a property? Um, what's what's your advice there? Do your own research and don't be afraid to ask other agents in the area what they think. Like, go to one of their opens and say, you know, I've been to so and so's open down the road. What do you think of that property? What do you think of the value? The chances are that agent has walked through that property and probably appraised it as well. So they probably know what the vendor wants and they probably know what it's worth. So don't be afraid to leverage agents because most of them, particularly who operate real locally, most vendors get three agents in to appraise it anyway. So they kind of know. That's uh, that's really good, really good advice. I, I hadn't thought of that, to be honest, to be getting um, advice off, off um, or getting feedback from, from other agents. On the topic yeah. of... Um, on the topic of, I guess, um, uh, a client, a case study that you've that you've done recently, you're talking about last night's one. Do you does anything come to mind in regards to, I guess, the um the the craziest deal you've ever done or the best deal that you've ever done for a client? Does anything springs to the front of mind? Definitely, there's not, been one as recent as this weekend. Yeah, <laughs> um, I just did the best deal, and the reason it was the best deal was a number of things. Number one, the clients are just beautiful people, and I really want to get them a house. They've been following me for a long time. Um, Number two, that we had missed out on two properties, one at auction in a public setting and the second one, an off-market that turned into a boardroom auction. And we missed it. It sold for $3,000 more than our limit. So it was a quite like oh. a tight um, gap. Yeah. And so this property that we went to and we won at auction on the weekend, it's the first time it's ever happened to me. The quote was one four to one five, and I... Uh, had called three agents, as I always do, got the pricing feedback, and all of them said it's at least 165 to 175. There's no way that property is a 14 to 15. It's definitely light. Yeah. Half an hour before the auction, a similar property in a parallel street sold for 1.78 million. And I was going into this auction ready to be aggressive and really knock everybody down. So I opened the bidding at 1.55. So 50K over the top end of the range, yeah. knowing it was well within the conservative constraints of what the valuation would be. Yeah. And the most bizarre thing I bid, they went inside and referred the bid to the vendor. They came out and said it was on the market. Nobody else bid. And I, wow. I won it. And a and comparable then, was one street parallel for $200,000 less, more. Half an hour before, like the most recent sale you could get half an hour before the auction. Like, um, so then I was like, Harry and I like, did that just, that actually (laughs) happen? The client was crying. Like (laughs) the kids are running around and it was just like madness. And then you go into a bit of doubt because you're like, well, why didn't, like, that's a bargain. Like, why did no one else want to, you know, buy it? And nah, we backed ourselves. We did all our due diligence. We know. And I've since spoken to the agents who I originally called to get the pricing feedback. And they were like, we saw that result. We couldn't believe it. Like, how did you, how did that happen? Um, so that's wow. definitely a highlight. And I don't know if I can replicate that. That was, <laughs> that was, yeah, very unique. Well done. When did you say that was last weekend? Literally just this Saturday, just gone like four days ago. Wow, your clients would be thrilled. That would be like so. A lot of the time, we we hear people where they say, "Oh, you know, how can a buyer's agent help, or or where can they add value?" It, it is a hefty fee, especially for first home buyers. That's the market that you're helping in. Um, so yeah. it's a big big chunk out of their deposit. But I mean, that's the perfect example as to the return on on investment that that you can get. Um, 
if if mm. using a buyer's agent or if using a good buyer's agent. Yeah, big time. And and um yeah, they've since sent messages like they they're still trying to process it basically that that, that even happened. But um yeah, it certainly goes to show the value. And also through that whole time of working with them, we had multiple um, off-market opportunities in a very tight market that they were exposed to. They weren't the right fit. I mean, one was we did go into that boardroom auction, but they did have exposure to choice even though they did ultimately buy it at auction. And I think they wouldn't have known that was a good property had they not seen all the other options that we took them through as well. Yeah, I, that's that's really really interesting you say that. So my brother-in-law is a buyer's agent now, but he was a real He's been a buyer's agent for about three years now, but he was a real estate agent yeah. for about 20 years. So he's, and his dad was a real estate agent, his brother's a real estate agent, and they live and breathe real estate. And an analogy he used for me really early on was imagine your buyer or even a seller, imagine um, a conveyor belt and you want to know what stage of the conveyor belt they're up to. Um, if you're a seller mm-hmm. and they're at the very beginning of that conveyor belt process and you give them the strongest offer that they're going to achieve. If they're at the very beginning of that process and they haven't been conditioned, that's going to work against you throughout the entire process or throughout the entire journey. Um, And it's the same for a buyer as well. Like if this was the first property that you were showing these these clients and you had said, we're going to have to go 100, 200, $150,000, $200,000 above the top end of, of what the um, what the guide is. Um, I don't know, but potentially they wouldn't have been um, ready to, to, to pull that trigger or wouldn't have necessarily agreed with you. But because they've been through that process, they've missed out on uh, a few options. They've seen properties sell. Um, they're at the end of that conveyor belt where they're happy to take that feedback on board. And uh, as long as that feedback is the right feedback, that's when you know, clients can pull the trigger quite comfortably. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're so right. And that's one of the biggest things I try and establish when I even do a discovery call is like, at what stage are you at? Because ultimately, a client coming to us should have at least been out for three Saturdays worth of open homes, inspected ideally minimum 10 properties and have a reference point of a property they'd like us to replicate. If you can't produce that, it's probably too soon to engage us. And um, we work best when we know what the client wants and when they see it, they know it because we could find it in week two. And if you're not ready until week eight, yeah, it doesn't doesn't work. So if people listening, you know, like if you're thinking about an advocate across Australia, like make sure you're ready because otherwise you're kind of wasting time and money in the meantime. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. Look, in terms of um, you do work with a lot of first home buyers. What's the what's the biggest mistake that you see first home buyers first home buyers make? Getting mum and dad involved. And I don't mean from like the bank of mum and dad being guarantors, like definitely do that. Um, but if you can avoid it, like I don't think you should be taking them to every open home. I don't think you should be relying on their opinion if you don't have to. If they've got financial benefit in the property, I think you have to take it on board. But yep. if they don't, I've heard and seen mums and dads and family members more generally um, get in the way of um, good deals because of fixations on very small aspects of the property that probably can be changed. Yeah, that would my biggest tip is like know what you want and you go and find it. Don't engage people who are actually not uh, a vested, like, have vested interest in the property. Interesting. You didn't have to think much to to come up with that. So I assume you see that you see that happen um, happen quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. It's probably the most common thing outside of you know the obvious things of like buying properties that are a bit of a dud for whatever reason. Maybe they're small internally or don't have enough light or aspect or one of many rather than one of a few. You know the key fundamentals that I'm sure you guys um, always look for as well, because a home is an investment. You know, it it, it is an investment. 
commitment of money. You want it to work for you. It's not the primary goal, but it certainly is a goal. I've never had someone come to me and say, oh yeah, we want to buy a property, but we don't care if it doesn't, um, (laughs) if it goes backwards, like we don't mind. (laughs) Exactly. No, hundred percent. In terms of, um, you were touching on something, we're talking about something just before, um, just, just before we came, came on live and, and you wanted to touch on the apartment market in in Melbourne at the moment and sort of, Mm -hmm. I guess the, the benefits that that can have for some people that are potentially looking to get their foot in the door. Um, let's touch on that. Yeah. So I speak to a lot of prospective clients. Some of them are very flexible in how their money's spent and they'll become a rent vester and that's when we give them to you basically and say, you know, what's the best possible thing they can buy for $500,000. Other camp that people sit in are the people who are very nervous about the rental market and rental environment in Melbourne. They're worried about their rental increase and but also worried that their landlord might need to sell because they can't manage the mortgage repayments. Um, so with that comes the people who want security of their own property. And most of the time it equals an apartment as a purchase because that's what they can afford in yep. Melbourne, in a ring of Melbourne or like within 10K radius of the CBD. Probably quite common and I'm sure you hear it that people say, well, I'd never buy an apartment. That's such a common sentence. I wouldn't touch apartments. I probably wouldn't if I was an investor either. You know, like my desire is not to buy an apartment, certainly to buy a house on land. But as a first home buyer, that might be the best possible choice for them to have the lifestyle that they want, to not be stuck on a train for an hour and a half to to commute to the CBD if they do buy a house on land out in the sticks. Like there's lifestyle and there's investment and you've got to find a balance between the two. And I think apartments offer lifestyle and I don't think we should be shunning apartments for first home buyers. I think they're a really good purchase for them. Yeah, and and we get this question asked quite a bit whether what, what strategy someone should go down if they're a first home buyer, whether they should go down the rent vesting strategy or, or owner occupied or whatever it might be. And we tell them we give them the facts in regards to the financial numbers that they can um, that they can expect based on what path they want to go down. But we mm-hmm. tell them ultimately whether you rent vest or not comes down to an emotional decision. Um, because you need to weigh up how important uh, it is for you to own your own house, so you don't get you don't have to move on in case your your landlord needs to sell the property, or you're not worried about future rental increases, or even as a young family, like I've just had two kids and we were rent vesters. This is probably something important. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will will, will um, resonate with this as well. So we were planning on rent vesting our whole life, and and it was a, I guess that was a strategy that we were completely comfortable with. Spend the last eight or nine, or spend the last 10, 11 years building up a, an investment portfolio and continue reinvesting. Had our first child, and then all of a sudden, this emotional thing triggered inside myself and my wife, where we we're like, we want the stability and security of of having our own home. Financially, it didn't make any sense on the northern beaches of Sydney mm. to do that. But there is mm. an emotional factor that people need to consider, which outweighs any financial benefit that you can that you can get, uh, especially when you start raising a family. Or switch. I mean, not necessarily only when you start raising a family, but for us, that's what triggered it. Yeah, definitely. And I hear a lot about that, and you know, school zones and being certain and also just yes yeah, stability for the kids you don't be moving potentially every 12 months like when your rent's up you know do you keep moving on like when you have no dependence and even better when you're single like you can just up and leave whatever you like it's just you have to worry about yeah. so that being said rent vesting is a great way to trial areas like i know exactly where i want to buy because i've lived in so many different locations uh, and so I treat it as a trial to before I commit and I'm happy renting. I'm very happy renting. My property is not going anywhere because 
I know the landlord owns the entire block wow. and he's not um, selling out, which is a very good position to be in. Um, but, uh, you know, outside of that, why not try different pockets of Melbourne before I commit to a large sum of money in something that I'm going to be tied to for a long time? It's kind of like dating. <laughs> Date the suburbs before you before you marry one. Try <laughs> before you buy it, 100%. Yeah. We, can, we can definitely, again, I'll, re- I'll relate to that. So we, um, we, we rented in a few different places, then moved into a uh, rented in, in a house more in the suburbs about sort of 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes from the beach, uh, more in, uh, in the suburbs where you have this picture of what a family should, should live in as, as you get older. We were there for eight months and then moved out and then much preferred to downsize and move into a location that had those amenities and had the lifestyle benefits that we, um, that we wanted to. And that's where we ended up buying. I told my wife so many times, we're so lucky we didn't end up buying in the area that we moved to originally when we first had our, had our child thinking that that's what you do when you when you start raising a family um so completely can can relate to that yeah it's a balance accommodation versus location that's what i always talk about and unless you have an infinite budget you're never going to get the optimum of both but you need to work out what's more important to you because obviously further out equals bigger house closer in equals smaller but you know better location so it's always a balance between those two things yeah that's right i guess in terms of you just touched on apartment market i'd love to hear what you're seeing in the apartment market in melbourne at the moment but also um not just the apartment market what are you seeing on the ground um going out and doing these inspections on a daily basis for sure so yeah the apartment market has demand because of the rental crisis so People are going, well, I think I'd just rather buy so I know I've got my own place. And there's not enough apartments being sold. There's probably not enough apartments even being built, really, Um, especially not boutique. Like blocks that have under 40 in them, um, they were built a lot in like between, I'd say, 2010 to sort of 2017-ish, these boutique blocks. Um, now it's more about for the feasibility of the developers, they've got to be big blocks and they've got to be a lot of apartments for them to get their return. So in terms of the available stock, there's not enough. I don't think there's going to be enough for a long time. So that's creating some really good results for sellers in the apartment market. The ones that are suffering are the ones that were built in the time where you could get away with the second room not having a proper window. They could have borrowed light. Yeah. A lot of those on the market at the moment um, it's probably just the turnover time of like it's been between five and ten years of holding them, so they're moving them on. Yeah, um, that's tricky. But the market in general, there's just this sense of like, when is, are there going to be enough properties? Because it just, even in my whole time of operating, I've never felt like I've had ample choice of any one thing. Now it's just real bad because we're down about twenty percent from last year again, and wow. so it's, it's tough and it's competitive. And it's fast. When something's good, it moves fast. Would you call it a FOMO market or not quite at that at that stage? No, it was a FOMO market. Um, definitely in one period of time, kind of last year, as the rates were increasing month on month, people wanted to lock in, you know, get in while they could. Yeah. It's not FOMO at the moment. Um, it's just, I feel like it's a circumstantial market. It's people who have sold and need to buy. It's people who have moved here and need to buy. Yeah. And it's the rental crisis that's driving it. Yeah, well, it's it's you. You got three hundred and fifty thousand people coming into the country on a annual basis at the moment. All these people need somewhere to live, and most of these people are going to be renters. So that's putting crazy pressure on 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 the rental market. These 
uh, people coming into the country will end up being um, home buyers at some stage. Some of them might be in a position to buy a property straight away, but majority of them are renters. They'll eventually be home buyers down the track, whether it be one, two or three years um, down the track. But there is nowhere near enough supply coming forward to help with the the demand that, that we're seeing, um, not just in Melbourne, but in most capital cities around the country at the moment. Yeah, and I think the the issue is whilst we have this urban sprawl and we've got so much land that we can use, the appeal isn't quite there because the amenity just isn't there. You know, these estates, I've seen estates where people have been promised, you know, daycare centres and shopping centres and all these things and they just haven't happened or they're just really taking a long time. And so um, people are, you know, price-wise being forced to buy in these estates, but lifestyle-wise would rather just rent a bit closer to the city because it makes more sense. And all those factors are putting pressure on. Then you add Airbnb into the mix, which um, is a whole nother can of worms. But um, yeah, the short-term rental market is impacting the long-term rental market and it's not great. Yeah, interesting to see what happens. Well, time will tell in regards to whether um, more stock will come on the market if interest rates start start um, will continue to go up and if that stock will outweigh the, uh, yeah. the demand that we're seeing. But I guess time will tell. No one really has the, um, has the answer to that. But I think, um, look, I think for today... Uh, we've covered off a lot, and I, I'm I'm so grateful that you've come on come on the show. Thank you so much. I guess um for those who are listening, where can they where can they find you if they want to reach out? Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram. I mean, you can find me on my website, but in terms of engagement of finding out who I am and what I'm about, Instagram, and I am new to TikTok, but I'm trying to I'm trying to navigate the world of TikTok. It's brutal on TikTok. People are very opinionated, um, <laughs> but. If you just search Emily Wallace in the old Google, I'll pop up and all my contact details are on my website. Nice. And we'll put those details in the uh, in the show notes as well. But thank you so much for coming on, Em. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And um, as a side note, it's been a pleasure working with you guys too um, to help our investor clients because as you've heard today, I don't buy investments, but you guys certainly do. And our clients that have gone through you have been really, really happy and um, appreciate the relationship that we have. Thank you so much. And just to touch on that, the the people that come through or the clients that come through or the prospects that come through from you, the amount of trust that they have from you and the amount of rapport that you've been able to build with them, uh, it is a testament to our, to how you operate and, the, and that um, person personal relationship that you have so well done thank you yeah they uh that hopefully they they trust what i say and i'm putting them in good hands so yeah the feedback's been good all around (laughs) thanks em thank you thanks for listening to the lazy equity podcast the advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks if you would like to stay in touch with the show join the lazy equity facebook group or find the investors agency on instagram and facebook